Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Well, it was five days before Christmas in 1943 and there's an American B-17 bomber that was barely able to keep flying. It had been on a bombing run over some German airfields and had been hit multiple times by flak fire and machine gun fire from other German fighter planes. The gunners of the B-17 bomber had been killed and it was just a pilot and the co-pilot left alive and they were trying to find their bearings back to get back to England over, uh, over in England to the airfield but as they were trying to find their way they accidentally flew over a German airfield and immediately a German Messerschmitt fighter was sent out to shoot them down. The pilot of the B-17 bomber, his name was Charlie and he looked at his co-pilot and he said, well that's it, he's going to destroy us. Now the German fighter pilot a man named Franz Stiegler, said he had never seen a plane in such bad condition. The tail and rear section of the plane was almost completely destroyed. The nose of the plane was totally gone and holes covered the entire plane. So something like that would be sort of what that plane would be looking like. So Charlie, the pilot of the bomber and his co-pilot, braced themselves for death. They said, certainly we'll be shot down in, in moments. They'll just put machine gun fire through the cockpit and that will be it. We'll be dead. But then they happened to look out the window and they saw that the German fighter plane was flying beside them. And the German fighter pilot waved and nodded and pointed the direction back to England because their navigation systems were destroyed. This fighter pilot knew it. The German fighter pilot actually flew with them for quite a while uh, until it was unsafe for him to do so and he turned around and he escorted them back. When he landed at his airfield, the German fighter pilot, he told his commander that the plane had gone down over the sea. And Charlie... Uh, and his co-pilot of the B-17 bomber, they debriefed the incident and were told to never speak of it. Because, of course, you don't want your enemy looking like nice people, right? Now, this is a true story. I fact-checked it in a few different places. And the incredible thing is that Lieutenant Brown, that's the pilot, Charlie. Like, yeah, his name is actually Charlie Brown, which is like, you can't make that up, right? Um, he actually found the German fighter pilot 40 years later. Franz Stiegler. Franz had actually moved to Canada. And uh, him and Charlie reunited and became very close friends and toured around down in the United States talking at Air Force uh, uh, veterans uh, functions. And so what that German pilot, Franz, demonstrated that day in 1943 was mercy. In his words, he said, I didn't have the heart to finish off those brave men. I flew beside them for a long time. They were just trying to get home, and I was, I was going to let them do it. I couldn't have shot at them. It would have been like shooting someone in a parachute. Now, let's just think about Franz, though, for a second. German fighter pilot. There's an American, or English bom an American bomber flying back to England. It's already delivered its bombs. It's already destroyed some of your buildings. In fact, it's probably killed some of your people. Might have even killed some of Franz's friends. So it's no small thing for a German fighter pilot to see a bomber finished its bombing run and say, I'm going to take these men home and not destroy them. In war, you think they don't, they're the enemy. I don't know how many of my countrymen they've killed. But that's mercy. Mercy is not something commanders in the army look for in their soldiers. 
But thankfully for Charlie and his co-pilot that day, Franz chose to extend mercy. I think we all love the concept of mercy. I love stories like this. And so we come to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Those are pretty simple words of wisdom to live by. And as a purely theoretical concept, mercy sounds like a really good idea. I would say even people who are kind of apathetic or even antithetical to the idea of Jesus or Christianity would say, these words of Jesus are good. We like the idea of mercy. The problem comes when we find ourselves in situations where we are required to actually extend mercy. Because I think the truth is we all like to receive mercy. We like stories of mercy. I think we have a harder time extending mercy. I look at the example of my kids. When Ryan does something that he shouldn't do, he wants me to be very merciful, right? He doesn't want the full weight of the punishment. He doesn't want the full weight of judgment. He wants mercy. However, if his sister Ava does something wrong, well, he wants the full weight of judgment, right? He wants fairness. He wants her to pay for what she has done wrong. He doesn't want any mercy extended. He's happy to receive it. He doesn't like to see it given. I remember one time we had a battle over Ava eating her beans at supper. Honey, honey honey-baked beans. Like they're sweet. They taste good. They're like little candies. And she wouldn't even put it in her mouth. Like she wouldn't even put the spoon to her lips. And like I'm okay if kids don't like food, but they have to at least try it. So we had this big battle. And I said, okay, that's it. You can't have dessert. You can't have snacks. You can't have treats until you put a spoonful of beans in your mouth. If it's not tonight, it'll be tomorrow night. I had to go buy cans of beans. And I had to make beans every supper. And then I was sitting there eating beans all by myself because she wouldn't touch them. So this went on for probably four or five days. Now, the problem was we were going to go on a big two-week road trip. And, I, and, and we were camping for most of it. And I was like, okay, that's it. We've got to buy a lot of beans. Like, she's not getting it. No ice cream. No chocolate bars until she puts a bean in her mouth. But it became pretty apparent that that just was an unrealistic goal. I mean, I'm not going to be baking beans every night on my camp stove just, and then me eating it, I'm sick of beans. Um, so I had to relent, right? I had to say, okay, okay, you win, Ava. I guess you don't eat beans. And Ryan was mad, right? Because what did I say? I said, you can't have any until you eat the beans. And then I relented. I showed mercy. And I think that that illustrates that we, we like to be the recipients of mercy. It's really hard to see someone who doesn't deserve it receive mercy. Mercy is counterintuitive because it goes against our natural kind of sinful human nature that wants to get revenge. And sometimes it even goes against, this isn't the sinful nature, but sometimes it can even go against our sense of justice. Martin Luther King Jr. made a really profound statement in regard to that sense of revenge we want. He said this. He said, the old law of an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. And human nature being what it is, we often don't do an eye for an eye. We tend to say, if you took my eye, I'll take both of yours. If you knocked out my tooth, I'll knock out all your teeth. We don't actually do well at the justice component as humans. We tend to want to take it the next step. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you twice as bad. This is, of course, why Jesus will say later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the Beatitudes are the start of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same kind of flow of thought, he'll say this. 
You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. What Jesus is quoting at the beginning part of this is the law of Moses, the Torah. The Torah tried to regulate fair punishment so that the punishment for violence would not exceed the injury. An eye for an eye is harsh but fair and just. But here Jesus once again actually takes us beyond the law to a higher way of living and flourishing. We're to extend mercy and take nonviolence as often as possible. And so if there's an obstacle to doing mercy, it's this need that we have for justice to be done, or if we're being really honest, usually it's more a burning desire to get revenge on those who hurt us. Yet Jesus tells us the way to flourish in life spiritually is to extend mercy, to leave your desire for vengeance or revenge to God, and be sure to be seeking mercy in your pursuit of justice. Justice without mercy is actually contrary to what the scriptures would teach or what Jesus would teach. And so I think let's just pause for a moment and define exactly what mercy is. Like when Jesus is talking about mercy, what does he mean by that? So I think this is a good definition of mercy in the way Jesus means it. That mercy is love that responds to human need in an unexpected or unmerited way. And at its core, mercy is really forgiveness. When Jesus says later in his Sermon on the Mount that we should love our enemies, let's just let let that sink in, love your enemies, pray for them, do good to them, that's mercy. Enemies don't deserve love, they don't deserve blessing, and they don't deserve your prayers, yet we are to do all those things out of love anyways. But that is mercy, because mercy is unmerited, done out of love. Jesus sees that the religious leaders of his day are people who don't understand mercy. When Jesus is criticized by the Pharisees, and he's criticized often, but one of the times he's criticized, it's when he's, you know, and you all probably know this, is that they did not like that Jesus ate with those who were considered sinners. They didn't like that Jesus spent time in in the places of people's houses. They said, those are scum, those are bad people, those are sinners. Why Why would you eat with them? And Jesus responds to the religious leaders, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Jesus is quoting there, that highlighted part on the screen, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that's from Hosea 6.6. 6. And that's, that's where God, through the prophet Hosea, is accusing the people of Israel that their love is like the dew on the grass. He says, your love is fleeting. It's, it's like a dew that is there for a moment and gone as soon as the sun comes out. It, your love doesn't last. And so God says, what I want from you is mercy. I don't want your religious duty and religious ritual if you neglect mercy. The point is that God wants his people to be alive in their hearts. There's a way of doing religion where you're not alive in your heart. You go through the religious motions and think, oh God, I did your ritual, aren't you happy with me? And he goes, no, where's your heart? Is your heart turned towards me? And and that's what God's criticism of his people is. He's going, you do all the sacrifices, but you neglect mercy. Your love is like dew on the grass. So religious ritual, divorced from love for God and love for others, that is lacking in kindness and justice, 
is a dead religion. It has no power. It is nothing. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, just like he does later in Matthew's gospel, he says this, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, right? Religious ritual practiced to the, the best degree. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. A religion without kindness, without love, without goodness is a worthless religion. And God would be the first to say it. Coming into church every Sunday but not practicing love, mercy, faithfulness, kindness, and justice to your neighbors is a worthless religion. It has no power. Mercy is one of the foundational points of Christian practice. And we who have received God's mercy should not be the ones who withhold mercy from others. Unfortunately, human nature means we often do accept mercy when it's given to us, but withhold it when we should be giving it. Jesus, knowing the heart of humanity, tells a parable about this. It's in response to a question about how often should we forgive people. I'm going to read from the message version. So Peter got up the nerve to ask Jesus, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. Then he starts a parable. The kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay it. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance, I'll pay it all back. Touched by his plea, the king left, let him off erasing the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10. He seized his fellow servant by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The fellow servant threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. But the man wouldn't do it. He had his fellow servant arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, you evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious, put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. See, I think Jesus in this parable strikes at something in the heart of the human nature. We love to receive mercy. We beg for mercy. We want mercy. We have a really hard time extending that gift to other people. The obvious question that comes to mind when you go through this parable is why the forgiven servant couldn't see the hypocrisy of his behavior. I think the answer is a pretty simple one. It's because he had a legitimate complaint against the other man. He wasn't trying to steal something from this servant. The other man really did owe him $10. And I mean, technically... He doesn't have to forgive his fellow servant just because he was forgiven. And that's maybe kind of the problem we have with extending mercy. It's hard to extend mercy to others because there is only one kind of person to whom you and I can show mercy, a person who doesn't deserve it. There's a story about a mom who came back when Napoleon was kind of 
you know, emperor over a bunch of Europe and, and causing wars everywhere. And, and she came to Napoleon because her son was about to be executed for a few crimes. And the mother asked Napoleon to issue a pardon on behalf of her son. But Napoleon pointed out that it was her son's second criminal offense and justice demanded death in that situation. Well, I don't ask for justice, the woman said. I plea for mercy. And the emperor said to the woman, well, your son doesn't deserve mercy. And the mom replied, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it, but mercy is what I ask. And her son was granted the pardon. But that is the hard part about extending mercy is because it has to be given usually to someone who doesn't deserve it. They haven't earned it. They might not be grateful for it. It's unmerited. As Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to them. Pray for them. Bless them. You know, you know sometimes... Sometimes for us, it's easy to extend mercy. You know, if the offense against us is minor, if a person seems truly repentant, it might even make us feel good to extend mercy. Like, oh, I took the high road in this case, right? I can, I can be gracious and extend mercy to this person. But sometimes the offense against us is major. Someone did something or took something from us that they cannot pay back. No amount of repentance or restitution will be enough to cover what was lost, yeah, let's say the person is struck by the weight, the weight of guilt and sin and what they've done to you or to your family and, and they come with sincere godly sorrow, you know, asking for your forgiveness. And you're now faced with that choice. Do you, do you extend mercy to the one who took something from you that they can never give back? This is the tension point. This is where Christian faith gets difficult because the biblical answer is yes. Although everything in your being would say no, if someone comes in, godly sorrow, truly repentant, and begs for forgiveness, even though they can never repay what they stole or what they took from you. And I, you just have to sit in that tension place because that's a hard thing to do. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. This is from a couple of years ago. It was in an American courtroom. I don't know if you remember the death of Botham Jean. He was a, a black American accountant who was shot by a police officer in his own home when the police officer, Amber, walked into his apartment thinking it was her apartment. She was actually one floor lower than hers, and she walked into the wrong apartment, into his apartment. And when she saw him in there, she shot Jean twice and killed him. In the prosecution of Amber, the prosecutor was able to produce text messages showing that Amber joked with her colleagues about the killing of Martin Luther King. And she had one text that was particularly terrible where she said, my dog might be racist, but that's okay, I'm racist too. When you're on trial for killing a black man in his own home, those types of text messages are, are pretty, uh, pretty rough to hear. And that's the part of the trial that really aggravated people. What wasn't as reported on was Amber's testimony where she broke down and wept and she told the court, I ask God for forgiveness and I hate myself every day for what has happened. I never wanted to take an innocent person's life. I am so sorry. After six hours of deliberation, the jury declared Amber guilty of murder. The judge sentenced her to 10 years in prison. And then the family of Botham Jean gave impact statements. Most of them were along the lines of, I'll never forgive you took what you cannot give back. But one person was different. It was Botham's younger brother, Brant, and he did something remarkable. He went to the microphone to give his impact statement, and he said, if you are truly sorry, Amber, then I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he'll forgive you. 
And I'm speaking for myself, but not for my family, but I love you just like anyone else, and I don't hope that you rot and die. That was a pretty common theme through the victim impact statements. So he said, I don't hope that you rot and die. So Botham forgives her, but then he goes one step further. He goes beyond forgiveness. He goes this next step. He says, I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what Botham would want for you. Give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing Botham would want for you. And after saying these words, he asked the judge if it would be possible for him to hug the woman who had killed his older brother. And the judge agreed, and Brandt hugged Amber for nearly a minute in the middle of the courtroom. What you see here is the interplay of forgiveness and mercy. There's the forgiveness, I forgive you, even though you can never give back what you took. But then you go to the next step, and there's mercy. I want the best for you. That's mercy. It's that one step beyond even forgiveness. And we're reminded in Jesus' words today that those who extend mercy and forgiveness are blessed. That means they flourish, they thrive spiritually and emotionally. Over and over again, you'll hear the stories of the people who forgave and who extended mercy and how it set them free from a prison of bitterness and anger and vengeance. Have you ever met those people who... Sometimes they have a case, sometimes they don't, but they say, this event happened, and because of that, I'm never going to forgive. And then you can actually see how that now becomes the lens through which they view the world, and they walk through life with this bitterness, with this deep anger, and they're in a prison of their own making. And I'm not one of those people that says, you just need to forgive everybody, because I have heard stories that are horrific, and I go, I wouldn't be able to forgive some of the things that have happened, but what I would ask for people to do is sit with the Lord and say, has bitterness grabbed a hold of me? Has my desire for vengeance overtaken me? And if so, can you just release that to the Lord? Can you trust that God, who is perfectly just, will see justice done, but it doesn't depend on you carrying that around? It's not going to be healthy for you in the long run. And, and I, I'm not telling you you must do this. I'm saying you just got to sit with the Lord in that. Because I know there's difficult things that you were going through, difficult things that you have done or seen in your life or had done to you. And you just need to sit there. But if you're being you know, caught up in bitterness, that's something I think the, the Spirit wants to set you free from. I'm reminded of uh, Corey Tenboom's story. Corey Tenboom was uh, sent to a Nazi death camp, and her sister uh, died in that death camp. I think it was Ravensbrück. And Corey has this incredible story of, you know, after the war, she would go around giving talks and, and you know, bringing people to faith in Christ. And at one of her talks, she recognized one of the most brutal Nazi guards that she had ever encountered sitting in her talk. She got through the talk, and, and at the end, this man came up to her, and he said, I am so sorry. Could you forgive me? And she said, I couldn't forgive him. I remembered all the cruelty, all the sadistic things that he did and what he said. I could not. But I asked the Lord to help because he, he was sincere. He was sincere in his desire to be forgiven, and she said, the Lord gave me the power. As I shook his hand, I was flooded with an experience of release and forgiveness. I forgave the man wholeheartedly. 
And so what the spiritual principle is that I've seen over and over again is that withholding forgiveness and refusing to give mercy, especially for those who come to us sincerely asking for forgiveness and mercy, is dangerous to our emotional and spiritual health. It almost always leads us to places of bitterness and anger and vengeance, which poisons our hearts and minds. And Jesus says the blessing for those who show mercy is that they will receive mercy. But we know that since we live in a fallen and oftentimes dark world, showing mercy doesn't mean you'll get mercy from that person in return. You might show mercy to someone and they might turn around and stab you in the back the very next day. So how can Jesus be so confident that those who show mercy will receive mercy? It's because he's speaking about the character formation. He's not speaking about, you know, a karma principle, like if you show mercy, others will show mercy to you. That's not what he means, because the reality is you could show mercy to someone and they could go out and hurt you. What he means is that you will experience inner formation by the Holy Spirit, our hearts will become more like that of Christ and, and will become more like our Father in heaven as we demonstrate mercy. The practice of mercy is deeper than some sort of karma thing, right? That, oh, if we're merciful, others will be merciful to us. That's not what we're talking about. So why be merciful then? It's because in extending mercy, God our Father extends mercy to us. And as we are merciful, we become more like our Heavenly Father. We're talking inner heart transformation, the practice of mercy is a spiritual renewal of our own hearts and minds. Because Jesus says this when he talks about loving your enemies. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them, expecting nothing in return. I mean, just sit with that. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So we love our enemies and do good to them and expect nothing in return because that's who our Father is. And we want to be like our Father. He is merciful. That's the kingdom perspective. And I'm not telling you this is an easy thing to sit with. I'm just saying we've got to wrestle with these things. And we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to, to let us hear and receive these words because this is the kingdom perspective. The heart of the Father is mercy. And when we experience God's mercy in our own lives, we're more able and willing to extend mercy to others. When we show mercy, we're reminded of God's mercy to us. God blesses those who show mercy because mercy is close to God's heart. The prophet Micah tells this to the nation of Israel. He says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah has given these words to say to the people because the people of Israel start, again, they start to believe that all God wants from them is religious duty and more ritual and bigger sacrifices. The nation of Israel has a heart problem, a love problem that they're trying to fix with religious duty. Again, the worst thing you can see is people who are religiously faithful but lacking love. That leads to death. It will not lead to life. And what was happening is Israel is they were trampling on the poor and withholding justice from people in the courts and practicing violence against one another. And they thought God was okay with that because they did their religious duty. They thought it's okay to trample the poor. It's okay to, to withhold justice from people. It's okay to do these things because we bring our sacrifices dutifully. And they wonder why God isn't pleased. They wonder, so then they actually start wondering what would it take to please God? They think it's more religious ritual. So they ask, this is my paraphrase. They ask, what more does God want us to do? 
Should we do only what God requires or should we sacrifice thousands of rams with thousands of liters of oil? And finally, they get to the point where they're like, well, maybe God would be pleased if we sacrifice something more valuable than an animal. What if we sacrifice our firstborn son to him? Religion without love is a dead religion and leads you all sorts of weird places where they go, oh, our God just wants more religious duty. He just wants bigger sacrifices. And in response to that foolishness, God says through the prophet Micah, I don't need any more religious ritual. I don't need bigger sacrifices. You know what is good. And that's where the verse comes from. Act with justice, love mercy, walk humbly. So the answer to Israel's sin problem isn't more numerous or painful sacrifices. It's not more religious ritual. It's something deeper than that. They need a change of heart. And without a heart change to what God loved, mercy and justice and humility walking with him, Israel's conformity to the law was nothing more than hypocrisy. And I think that's the lesson for all of us. We don't want to neglect mercy, justice, love, and humility. We don't want to think that, you know, doing our religious duty is a, is a replacement for that inner heart transformation, because it's not. When we show mercy, we see God's mercy displayed to us. Mercy is foundational to God's character. As Micah puts it, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And in scripture, James writes this, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. And you can see the parallel to Jesus' words, blessed are the merciful for they'll be given or they'll receive mercy. And so, I mean, again, another place that you can just sit and kind of wrestle in tension with this is that God holds us accountable if we don't show mercy. I don't know how else to tell it to you. Scripture's really clear. Those who do not show mercy, God, God looks at that. Showing genuine mercy is difficult. I understand that. It goes against our desire for revenge. It sometimes goes against our sense of justice. And there's no doubt there's a tension between justice and mercy that we have to wrestle with. But I think our tendency is to try and help those who look like they deserve it. We want people to prove to us that they're worthy of our time and our investment in them. But let me kind of close with this, that genuine mercy doesn't demand anything. It's simply given because it's rooted in love. We receive mercy after mercy, grace upon grace from our Heavenly Father, and our Father expects us to be people of mercy. It's what our family, it's what our spiritual family is all about, mercy and grace and forgiveness and love and truth. Only by God's power in us can we be as merciful as we ought to be. This isn't something that I think we humanly can get to. I think this is something the Holy Spirit has to form in us. Today, as we come into communion, we get to reflect on the mercy that God demonstrated to us by his willingness to die for us, to save us from death and to set us free from sin. And we remember that Jesus died for us not because we deserved it, but simply because of his great love for us. There is probably no greater symbol or picture of, of mercy than Jesus on the cross, the sinless lamb of God, carrying our sins in his body on the cross so we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. So if you want to get your communion cups out and your top part there is the bread. If you just want to take the bread out and we'll, we'll take it together. I'll just read a little bit here.
This bread symbolizes his body broken for us. And as we take together this morning, I'd ask that you remember his mercy is so great that he carried our sin in his body on the cross. This is his body broken for you. Let us take together. And as we take the cup, we remember that this is his blood shed for us, sealing for us a new covenant where we become the very children of God. In his mercy, God did not only forgive our sins, but gave us the right to become his children. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That is what his blood secures for us. You are all children of God through faith co-heirs with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms, not because of anything we did, but because of his great love and mercy. Let's take together the cup. I'll invite the worship team up to lead us in worship. Let me read one more piece of scripture that we can meditate on. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Let's worship together.